welcome to another episode of Andy Hears the 80s, the show where we go through the music of the 1980s and figure out just exactly what music is worth adding to the record collection. I'm your host, Andy, joined, as always, by my co-host, Aaron Keck. Rock on. And this week, uh, we're taking it a little different approach. This is um, this was something I noticed when I was putting together all the other episodes, that somehow, uh, in all 10 of those other episodes, I didn't get a single album from the year 1985. Uh, not even on purpose. That's fair. And even, it's funny, even I bought a few since then from like other bands. I got some more like Talking Heads. I got some more REM. I bought all of REM's IRS records except Fables of the Reconstruction, which came out in 1985. <laughs> I, I didn't even do that on purpose. But somehow it still worked out that it's I didn't It's the have middle any. of the decade. We'd... we'd we were just bored at that point yeah. just as a people so i had to i had to take a look and say well what exactly happened during 1985 uh, what music came out and so i found five records that came out during 1985 all of which very different all very interesting i think after strenuous searching strenuous searching t- years of research just went man, into this it was just just a just a music yeah. desert that mm-hmm. year was. I went to the record store and just shook the clerk and said, please <laughs> tell me what happened. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't there either. I wasn't there. No one was. Well, some of the headlines from 1985 I pulled up. Uh, we have, <laughs> of course. This uh, is good. This is a good reminder. Uh, the first arms were sent to Iran in exchange for hostages. Mm-hmm. Which we didn't even find out about until didn't 86, know. right? Mm-hmm. So that doesn't even count. Back to the Future opens in theaters. Okay, that's fair. Uh, the Titanic wreckage is discovered. Good. Uh, this, this is the this is the the number three story of 1985. <laughs> it's about something that happened 73 years earlier. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Nintendo Entertainment System released in the U.S. I didn't get it until '89, yeah. so whatever. Uh, New Coke is released, and and, and then canceled. promptly canceled. Yeah. yeah. And See, that's the that's the defining thing from 1985. It's like we've got an idea, and everyone's like, "No, mm-hmm. no, let's just let's just wait a year on this." And the mayor of Philadelphia, Wilson Good, bombs the Move headquarters, uh, a black activist group, killing 11 and destroying 60 plus homes in Philadelphia. Uh, that's significant. That is significant, and also forgotten, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I've I've heard of I've heard uh, people talking about this as. Like one of the most significant things to happen in America in the entire decade, yeah. and so few people remember it today. Mm-hmm. So there really is like this collective amnesia. Yeah, definitely go look it up if you haven't heard about it. Yeah. I, I think I ended up reading about it probably in 2015, like on a 30th uh, anniversary yes. kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, very tragic. Uh, so now <laughs> the music. Yeah, how are you going to come uh, out of that? <laughs> not well. But okay, well, okay, let's come out of that with uh, Live Aid. That was sure. that was 85, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a few benefits. Uh, right. This was... Some of which we'll get to. Some of which we'll get to. Uh, but before we jump ahead, let's start uh, on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Aww. The debut album of Whitney Houston is released. Oh, this comes out on Valentine's Day? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm in favor of that. <laughs> no? There are a lot of breakup songs on this That's album. True. They're not all love songs, for sure. Yeah, I mean, no, they're they're all love songs, <laughs> but they're... At various stages. They're kind of various states of <laughs> uh, the relationship, and usually more towards the end than the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a great uh, documentary that came out this year, 2018, just called Whitney, uh, by director Kevin McDonald that goes over her whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really well done. Uh, if you didn't know, Whitney Houston 
she was born in Newark, New Jersey, grew up the daughter of Sissy Houston, a soul singer, sang with Aretha Franklin, Elvis. She was a great, uh, prolific uh, backup singer for artists at that time. Uh, she was also the head of the church choir, and she got Whitney involved in that uh, straight away. Uh, but she, yeah, she was very involved with the church and with her family, and her her mom knew that she had uh, that Whitney had it right. She knew very early that this was uh, someone who could sing yeah. just as well. If and not this isn't just her. a mom thing. This is oh my daughter, she's right, so exactly, good. Yeah. No, she actually was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so then around, uh, let's see, she signs with uh, Arista Records in 1983 when I think she's only like 19 years old at that point. Yeah. She releases this one in, in uh, 85, obviously, when she's 22. So, I mean, she's very young, but she was very talented right from the beginning. Although when I saw that and is doing the same research, like, oh, she was born in, what, 63, and mm-hmm. she releases this in 85, so she was 22. That was less impressive for me because this whole time I thought that she was 17 uh, when, yeah. she recorded, when she recorded this album. So I'm like, oh, well, she's 22. Well, now this makes sense. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but come on. She was like, I mean... She was signed so young, but then they took like three years to really develop the mm-hmm. the album and get the right songs together. But yeah, she you know, people knew her locally right around when she was seventeen plus. But then it really yeah, twenty two is still kind of an average pop star age for uh, a release. Yeah, but this is just I mean, and this comes out and this just immediately comes out yeah. and just takes over everything in pop music. Mm-hmm. Like you're still hearing the the influence of this album i mean even today really but especially for the 15 years after this all the way through the 80s all the way through the 90s like this album just changes the game in Mm -hmm. terms of what pop music was and she would have seven number one hits from 85 to 88 in a row which is still a record yeah nobody's had a longer streak yeah yeah which is incredible Broke the beatles record which Mm -hmm. already (laughs) uh uh, but then, so let's take a listen to one of the songs from it. Uh, I think I'll play uh, How Will I Know. This is track six, I think. One of the fun ones.
singing to in this song? <laughs> yeah. I, I never thought about it. Like, I'm asking you because mm-hmm. you know about these things. Like, who is oh, she talking to? I'm sure I, I didn't look up the writing credit. I, I doubt she wrote it. But but I was. Yeah. it was funny listening to it. I'm like, Whitney, you'll know. Like, any guy would be clearly in love with you, I think, if, if given the chance. Right. So the fact that she doesn't know <laughs> suggests that this isn't going to work out. Yeah. I'm like, sorry. Not. Sorry, Whitney. <laughs> this, is, this is not meant to be. But uh, I think uh, this one... Some of the production on here obviously is is still very 80s sounding, kind of like uh, maybe not quite as uh, obviously 80s as like the Janet Jackson we heard last week, because there is some more kind of just traditional ballads and stuff that are on here. But I think it's still what's ca- what really carries it is her voice. Oh, God, she's yeah. obviously the best singer of the 80s, certainly of this program, if not the entire decade, if yeah. not, and beyond that. Probably. In terms of just sheer skill, and I mean, part of the reason this doesn't sound so definitively 80s is that it so influenced pop music, and mm-hmm. especially female vocalist-driven pop music, like you think about Mariah Carey mm-hmm. and Celine Dion and all of the others that kind of came out in the 90s, were so heavily influenced by Whitney Houston that 90s pop music sounds like this. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so it's not it's not Whitney Houston's uh, doing that this doesn't sound as definitively 80s mm-hmm. as it does. It's just this album is so influential that it's, it becomes timeless just by virtue of its own power and force. Yeah. Uh, the one gripe that I've always had about Whitney Houston is that She's got such an amazing voice, and you can tell she is just having so much fun singing mm-hmm. that you lose the you lose the the emotional weight. I think of a lot of the songs. So a lot of the songs on this album, and she will keep doing this on through her career, are depressing sad breakup songs like this song that we just heard Mm -hmm. is i'm in love with someone who's not in love with me i mean let's be perfectly honest about the status of this relationship Mm -hmm. it ain't gonna work out (laughs) but it's such a joyous song that that meaning just gets completely lost in the shuffle yeah i had that same thought seven years later when she comes out with i will always love you Mm -hmm. which is such a powerful song and she just knocks that song so far out of the park especially at the end that you almost lose the fact that it's a sad breakup song. Right. I'm saying, uh, well, I'll, I'll always love you because we're not going to be together anymore. Yeah, but, yeah. But I'll still carry that torch. But yeah. she just, like, belts it out in such a way at the end that all all the actual emotion just goes completely out the window, and the message of that song is, hey, everyone, I'm Whitney Houston. Listen to my voice. Mm-hmm. It is fantastic. Yeah. And she's right. Mm-hmm. Uh but I I prefer Dolly's version because Dolly doesn't doesn't blow out the meaning of the song with the power of her voice. She lets the song do the work. I was going to say that it's one of those covers that makes you forget about the original. To yeah. me, I don't know. I think the Whitney version is is the one I would go. I to. I mean, it is it is a cover that makes you forget about the original. But when I finally went back and listened to the original, I'm like, oh, this is what that song is about. I had no idea. Yeah. That's true. It, it's a different uh, kind of meaning to yeah. it. Yeah, and there's emphasis. a couple of songs on this album too. How will I know? Kind of like that. All at once is another one, mm-hmm. which is another like breakup song. But she's just singing it with such joy that you lose it. Which is yeah. why I think my favorite song off of this album is "Saving All My Love for You," mm-hmm. because that's a song that's also. 
I mean, she's the she's the mistress in that song. Mm-hmm. Like she has dreamed all her uh, all through this relationship that the guy is going to leave his wife right. and come to her, and she's now coming to terms with the fact that uh, that's never going to happen. But the end of the song is "Screw it, I'm going to have fun anyway." Uh-huh. So the fact that she's having fun singing the song like comports with the message of the song in a way that it doesn't necessarily with a lot of these other ones. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. This is my Whitney Houston theory. <laughs> I like it. Thank you for letting me get that out. <laughs> It's one of those bottling that up for 25 years. Uh, Saving all my love for you is is like one of those ones that like could be a wedding song that then everybody's like, wait a second, are you you listening to this? I've been to those weddings. (laughs) But uh, I was at a wedding once where uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light was like a big hit of the reception. uh And we're sitting there in the corner like, we all know what this song is. right? (laughs) Yeah, isn't it great? All right. That's I give a, it six months. Yeah, the enduring thing of uh, pop music is misunderstood, uh, catchy tunes. Yeah, right? yeah, right. But uh, Whitney would go on to uh, release, you know, obviously a lot of albums. She would uh, star in The Bodyguard in 92, like mm-hmm. you said. Uh, she performed uh, one of the first post-apartheid Nelson Mandela Freedom concerts in South Africa in 94. I mean, she was a worldwide star yeah. at this point. And that was part of what... Uh, soured that relationship with bobby brown uh in that they married in 89 she explodes in the bodyguard in 92 Mm. and really he couldn't seem to cope with being the lesser known of the two that seems to be the message of the documentary anyway yeah which is i I, I don't know i feel like he was already the lesser of the two and he definitely was but i should have known that (laughs) he he probably at least had some hope like well i could still have no he really shouldn't have had hope i mean you're marrying Whitney Houston in, like, I can see if it's 1983 mm-hmm. uh, and you meet Whitney Houston, maybe there's an inkling that you might be the, right. by the time you get to the end of the 80s, no, mm-hmm. no, Whitney's, Whitney's going to be the star of this relationship. Yeah. I don't care who you are. If, if her mom, a talented and like legacy artist from that era, hears her at 12 years old and is like, well, I'm done. Like <laughs> yeah. she knew immediately that she was not going to be the most famous yeah. one in the family. Uh, yeah, and I mean, as as great as the like the the '90s pop female vocalists mm-hmm. were, like Mariah Carey with her 18 octave range right. and Celine Dion as powerful as she's, Whitney blows them all out oh, of the water. Are, like anyone from the '80s and '90s who was trying to be a pop star was trying to trying be Whitney, to be Whitney Houston. Houston. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Yep. Then moving on to another pretty huge album uh, from the '80s that uh, nearly got overlooked by coming out in 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair. Nearly overlooked by us, but this album yes. sold what? Overlooked by nobody. Uh, yeah, nobody five, else. ten million copies, something like that. The hilarious thing now is I was uh, doing a, a Google search for Tears for Fears, and Google autofills when you start searching for Tears for mm-hmm. Fears, that autofills Mad World. <laughs> and I'm almost positive that's because of the Donnie Darko cover. Uh, almost certainly. Yeah. So all of these great songs from this particular album uh, are now like lesser known Tears for mm-hmm. Fears songs just because Mad World like had this resurgence 15 yeah. years later. Yeah, this is their second album, came out on February 25th of 85. Uh, yeah, Mad World was one of the singles from their prior album, came out uh, in 83, The Hurting, which was which had success really only in the UK. It yeah. didn't really, they didn't really explode until this one. Um, in fact, uh, let's see, yeah, The Hurting, it was only a number one album in the UK, nowhere else. Mm-hmm. 
But then, yeah, songs from well, the big chair. Well, that's just a failure. Then you only <laughs> yeah. go to number one in one country. Your Come home on. country. Please. I did that last <laughs> week. <laughs> it was in Latvia, but still. <laughs> uh, songs from that's the a big country, chair. You know, it's three <laughs> it sold, million people uh, or so. This one would sell uh, over six million worldwide. Uh, named after uh, the Sally Field TV movie Sybil. She was a, a character who would often go to the therapist, and she would sit in her big chair. That was her safe place. Sally so Field? She played, Is it Sybil so. Shepherd? It was called Sybil. I can't imagine Sybil Shepherd. Oh, no, you're right. I I was thinking that was Sybil Shepherd the entire time. Somebody else might have named something after a Sybil Shepherd thing that's not this. Okay, I'm looking this up Yeah, now. look it up. But I was pretty sure. No, you're probably... Uh, I'm sure you're right. No, that's the remake. <laughs> Starring Sally Field. Why did there I think that was not Sally Field the entire time? I think I, I, there's no way I could figure it out, but there, I think there's something Sybil Shepherd related in one of these albums probably. throughout our show. I mean, it's the Sybil Sybil thing that yeah, makes me think it's Sybil Shepherd. It I had no idea that was Sally Field. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we're talking about this movie with <laughs> Tears for Fears, yeah. but man, I'll learn something. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, but this one, the, uh, let's see. Oh, there's a companion documentary that came out that I watched, uh, Scenes from the Big Chair. Mm-hmm. shows a lot of tour footage and interviews and stuff of this time. It's pretty interesting. Uh, let's take a listen to... I got to go with... I got to go with Head Over Heels. That one's okay. it's my favorite going in. I think it's still my favorite. I also appreciated listening to the album that this is really a coherent package. Like mm-hmm. the song before that is broken, yeah. and you've got that uh, you got that same riff that then mm-hmm. launches into Head Over Heels. So yeah. the side B is a very it's it's almost a it's almost an Abbey Road medley mm-hmm. kind of where one song leads into another. And then right at the end of this is like a 
a reprise of Broken. Yes. Which is really cool. Yeah, it's one of the things I never would have known having only heard the single yep, version yep. and then hearing the album is yeah. pretty cool. Head Over Heels is great. If I'm picking a song off this album, I'm going with Everybody Wants to Rule Everyone. Yeah, yeah Everybody Wants to Rule the World. Uh, yeah, I mean, th- uh, this is this has some monster singles on it. Yeah. Head Over Heels, Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Shout. Shout's the other one, yeah. Uh, Mother's Talk was their lead single, which uh, didn't get as much traction, but it's still pretty good. Yeah. But yeah, this album is, of these five, this is the one I listened to the most uh, so far. I can go along with that. This one, uh, I think it's still, uh, you know, obviously it has 80s production value, but it's it's such a coherent album, A, that that helps uh, listen, listening start to finish. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of variety in, like Broken has that almost like disco, almost kind of beat, and then Listen, the final song, is like such a subdued, like, psychedelic almost kind of just uh, it's almost a pink floyd song yeah it sounds like and there's a confidence to it mm-hmm. as well like it takes a lot of balls to make an album and to produce a song with the idea that this is going to be like a stadium anthem yeah but you can tell that that's what they're going for and mm-hmm. head over heels everybody wants to rule the world shout i think to a slightly lesser extent but they want to play for sixty thousand people and yeah. they're recording songs that are going to fill stadiums mm-hmm. and they do it yeah yeah by their second album i mean yeah. like the the tour footage they're in germany even filling stadiums yeah like, this is a worldwide and that's success. after album number one which only makes it big in their home country which as we've established yeah. is such a crap accomplishment exactly. why yeah. even talk about it <laughs> like we're not impressed <laughs> But yeah, I, I thought this one was incredible. And uh, Head Over Heels also has that Donnie Darko cl- uh, connection. It was in one of the oh, montages. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. This it's is probably, fears, yeah. this is, uh, this might be a top 10 from the show, this album, I think. Uh, I I might go along with that. I mean, I, I think I agree with you. And there's one more album that we're going to get to for this week that I think has the potential to to rank along this as the, the best album of the week. But I think you can make the... Mm-hmm. I, I think I would make the case that this is the best album of the week. Um, I was almost like most surprised by this one because I was so familiar with those singles. And yeah. so I thought that was going to be it. it. Gonna like be I was going to have yeah. that and that'd be great. But I think the whole album really took me by surprise in being such a like confident and coherent uh, I think it, I think you get an advantage, and we've talked about this before, that an album that's recorded to be on an LP is going to be 45 minutes long, whereas mm-hmm. the later albums that come out are 60 minutes or more, and it's harder to put together a 60-minute coherent package of yeah. an album versus 45. So this album is only eight songs, mm-hmm. and they're, which means a lot of really concentrated good music in a way that you don't necessarily get from an album that has say 19 songs on it Mm -hmm. to pick a number at random. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's true. And and I think if you're going to make something that long, uh, it takes a lot of experience to know how, how and when to edit yourself too, I think. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Like you look at something like the wall, I think is still a successful double album, blonde on blonde. Mm -hmm. Those are, but those there's, 10 albums before those probably right right right. then you look at like you said last week the uh melancholy the infinite sadness yeah that could be one album that could be one album i mean we say the same thing about like the white album too Mm -hmm. like as great an album as that is you could cut a couple tracks out of that and probably be okay Mm -hmm. yeah so now we're going to this is probably what you meant by the one you're going to return to the most i think uh we're going 
uh, to April 23rd of 85, We Are the World is released. It's true, we are. And it takes the world by storm. Yep. This was a charity record put together uh, to help uh, fight famine in Ethiopia. Uh, and this was uh, successful in that regard. Uh, it generated $60 million that went to uh, USA for Africa, which is still a charity that still helps in Africa. So mm-hmm. they're still working and putting programs together down there to, for famine relief and other causes. Uh, musically, maybe a different story. Uh, yeah, I'm... I'm not going to uh I'm I'm not going to to rip on this album honestly. <laughs> like We Are the World first of all is a 7 minute long song mm-hmm. that does not need to be. Definitely not. I mean the the last three and a half minutes are just repeating the chorus over and over and getting back to the Beatles. Hey Jude can do that. <laughs> we Are the World yeah. maybe could have faded out after four and a half, but uh as an album, I was surprised. I figured this was going to be one one single at the top and then a whole bunch of crap underneath. Mm-hmm. I actually enjoyed listening to this. <laughs> the, let's give uh, some of the stars involved with We Are the World. Here's some members of the chorus. Uh, Harry Belafonte, Ray Charles, Bob Dylan, Smokey Robinson, uh, Holland Oates, Paul Simon, uh, and of course Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Also Same of the backup chorus. vocals on We Are the World. <laughs> It's funny, the, uh, there is a video, in fact, I think it was a uh, Diane Sawyer uh, special mm. of the time that I watched, uh, and it was, it's so funny panning through all these incredible musicians, yeah. and then there's Dan Aykroyd also, like, just looking <laughs> like, how did I get here? He was a blues brother, come it's, on. Yeah, it's funny, there was a... Uh, He's got chops. I, I, search, I typed into Google, like, how did Dan Aykroyd get to We Are The World, <laughs> and... There was like a an interview in some New Hampshire magazine or something that asked him that. And he was like, yeah, I was looking for a new agent at the time because I had been managing myself at the time. And, and I took a meeting with somebody who was like, hey, do you want to I've got this We Are the World thing happening. You want to go to it? And he's like, uh, OK. <laughs> and that's that's how he ended up. I don't I know mean, who the agent was, but yeah. he just happened to stumble into the right office and take the right meeting. I would say yes to that, too. Yeah, right. Did he keep the agent? Because, I mean... <laughs> he didn't say in the He interview. just sort of got him onto We Are the World. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I'd hope so. That's a high achievement. If <laughs> you haven't even signed a contract yet. Like, yeah. I can put you next to Michael Jackson tomorrow. How's mm-hmm. that? Yeah, deal. <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, a song that was initially written by uh, Quincy Jones, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, Stevie Wonder. Those four kind of got together in the studio, laid down the bones of the track, and then got in this whole mess of uh, singers and songwriters after that. And it's mostly Michael Jackson and Lionel Richie, mm-hmm. right? Who write the, write yeah. the song. Yeah. yeah, Quincy Jones produced the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Steve Wonder was there also writing with him, I guess. But, yeah. Um, One of them 20... actually, I think it might have been Lionel Richie, but you've got the notes on this so you can tell me, like actually went through the song and said, okay, this line is going to go to this person and this line Mm -hmm. is going to go to this person. That must have been a long night. Yeah, I think that was, he and Quincy seemed to kind of work together on that. But yeah, there's about, God, I don't know, like 40 or 50 so artists that are in the chorus and then about a dozen or so break off to do solos uh, for that. The recording uh, for that, it was about. Uh, it was took all took place after uh, the American Music Awards one night. They all like came straight from this award show to go yeah. record the song. 
So starting at like 11 p.m. or something, they'd go for four hours just to record the chorus, like yeah. just the big choir arrangement. After that, about half of them go home, and then they spend another four or five hours recording the solos. So it was a it was a long night. That must have been super fun. Yeah. And they've got to do it at one o'clock in the morning yeah. because you like every major recording artist in 1985 is all showing mm-hmm. up to this one place, and they're trying to be as secretive as humanly possible right. so that the media doesn't get wind of it and you don't have like crowds of fans mm-hmm. outside going why why are michael jackson and cindy lopper and kenny rogers all together in yeah. one place it's pretty wild to see them all and and they really did all like everybody was cordial with each other there was no egos uh, they all got along and sang their parts and shook hands and they signed each other's copies of the sheet music and yeah. stuff so everybody had a great time recording it yeah uh i want to play the the song that stood out, maybe not for a good reason, but there is also a uh, Canadian supergroup that recorded a song called Tears Are Not Enough. Uh, this was billed as Northern Lights. This oh, was yeah. Another charity single recorded about a month after that made it onto this uh, album. Okay, I'm looking at this album for the first time. Uh, it's not Northern Lights. It's Nothern Lights. Oh, man, you're right. It's Nothern Lights. Is that a typo on the We Are the wow. World album, or <laughs> was it actually Nothern? The inner the inner liner notes build them as no- Northern with an R. Oh, God. But you're right. The back of the CD is missing an R. Nothern. Jeez. That's good. Let me, uh, let's see. I'll play a little bit. I'll play a little bit of uh, the Northern Lights single, and then I'll list off some of the members of that as well. As every day goes by, how can we close our eyes until we open up our hearts? We can learn to share and show how much we care. Right. Because we also need fears. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tears are not enough. We need yeah. fears. Uh, this one stars such Canadian uh, singers as Brian Adams, uh, Gordon Lightfoot, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, John Candy makes his Dan Aykroyd-like appearance, right, right. and as well as uh, Eugene Levy and, and Catherine O'Hara as well. 
Paul Schaefer. Okay, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hare. I don't know about John Candy, but Eugene <laughs> yeah, and Catherine least, have chops. We heard them in a mighty singing, win. They're yeah. terrific. Uh, but this one is, I thought it was so funny because A, it's essentially the exact same song as yes. uh, US, as uh, We Are the World. But there is a verse after that where they say, let's show them Canada still cares. And then there's a French verse after that as well. So yeah. <laughs> just to drive it home. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, so we talked about Tracy Chapman's album last uh-huh. week, and this album kind of falls into the same... Uh, okay, that's... I don't mean that to be an insult to Tracy Chapman yeah, right. because I don't think this album has a particularly strong mm-hmm. reputation, but I was actually fine listening to this album for the most part. Like, a lot of the songs off of it are actually really good. Like, the Springsteen live song, Trap, yeah. like, that was that was great. I love that song. Yeah, a couple trapped, of other really good ones, uh, too. A cover of a Jimmy Cliff song. That Yeah, the Bruce Springsteen live song, I thought was the standout of, yeah, the, of the album. Yeah, easily the standout. There's a couple other really good ones here, too. And then there are songs like Tears Are Not Enough, where they're just... We're not even trying to, uh-huh. to do anything fun or... We're just we're just sending a exactly. message. It's just to buy the numbers, yeah. yeah. And we're gonna take the three minutes it takes to make it rhyme, but mm-hmm. we're not really gonna do anything <laughs> clever with that. Yeah, but yeah, obviously, you know, the money went to a good cause, mm-hmm. and um, and some of these artists even did donate as well, like to the charity. But um, and and yeah, I think all of the tracks that are included that are the non-charity singles. I think are all decent. That Springsteen one's definitely the standout. Mm-hmm. The other ones are fine. Prince, Tina Turner, uh, the, the Huey Lewis one uh, is is okay. It sounds. It reminded me of. Um, it sounded a lot like uh, if this is it. Yeah. And so I was like, I, I can just listen to that song if I really want. Right. To. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, it was mostly like, you know, I. This is this being 1985. I had to get like, <laughs> this is part of the 1985, most 1985 history, right? album. Yeah. So I mean, honestly, there are there are albums that we have that we have listened to over the course of this show that I thought were more of a waste of my time than this album. <laughs> wow. Was. So, um, I, I had I had I been. Uh, cognizant in 1985 and bought this album and listened to it i wouldn't have been disappointed uh-huh. with the quality of the music yeah and definitely look up the uh the diane sawyer special about I the should. making of the single it's pretty yeah. good this is a solid b minus for me i think <laughs> yeah. yeah and if you're a springsteen completionist then i think that song's worth it's a good song yeah. it's a really good song i was listening to it on the way over here mm-hmm. i was not listening to no thern lights but <laughs> no thern lights that's that's so funny so what? So you were looking at albums from 1985. Mm-hmm. What was the number six album that you dropped? Because we're doing because five albums. Uh, what was the What was the last album that you said no to because you wanted to include "We Are the World" on it? I, I don't know if there was one that got cut. There uh-huh. were, um, like I said before, there are there are releases from other artists we've talked about already that I would have happily got. Okay, uh, but. Like, uh, you know, Husker Du released two albums in 85, but we okay. talked about Zen Arcade uh, the year before. Right. So uh, there are plenty of 85 releases that are, should be owned before We Are the World, I think. But I, I didn't want to double cover anybody before I... This, yeah. yeah. Because we could do a whole episode about all of the, like, the, the, the last song or the last albums cut from previous episodes. Yeah. I know we obsessed over where the b52s should go and that's like, true they, they were cut quite uh, made a cut 
from I think the pop episode. Yeah. There, there's you know there's plenty of room for a season two if that yeah, if that happens. Uh, but next up, uh, coming to us from September sixteenth of nineteen eighty five, uh, this is Kate Bush's "Hounds of Love," this is her fifth album, which I was excited about because Kate Bush is one of those artists that I had heard of without mm-hmm. ever having actually heard, yeah, or or hearing and being familiar with like i'd heard some of the Mm -hmm. songs but i hadn't really connected them to the artists yeah and especially uh you know uh being uh, american obviously Mm -hmm. this is a artist who this is her fifth album but it was really the first one that got any play in the states this was uh her first album uh the kick inside was 1978 and she had the song wuthering heights which was a huge single in the uk but as we've established, that doesn't mean shit. So, <laughs> uh, but that uh, she does well in Latvia. Then, <laughs> yeah, that, then I'll then, then I'll listen fine, to it. Yeah, uh, but she was actually discovered by David Gilmour when she was seventeen, and he kind of took her under her wing and, and got her that first record deal. Uh, and she has probably, if she was going to compare herself to anything, I mean, it is kind of a progressive rock take on pop music. It's very experimental, very uh, otherworldly, almost yeah. in, in some of these songs. Very uh, heavily produced. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of uh, a lot of studio gimmicks and things like that. Yeah, and part of that is after her, she toured after her first album. So through all through '79, she was touring, mm-hmm. and then that was the only time she toured. She just became a, a studio musician. Really? After that. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So she's just making these records to be records. She didn't tour at all, which it, it is part of maybe why you know you don't really hear of her in the U.S. until the fifth album. Because yeah. if you know if you don't get to see a show, maybe you don't sell as many albums. I don't know about that. I've, I've always kind of wondered like what the connection is between a band going on tour mm-hmm. and playing shows. And how that relates to the success of, of right. an album or a song. Because honestly, most most singles that are big hits, you don't go and see the band. Right. Uh, and if you do go and see the band, you've already heard the single mm-hmm. and liked it and bought the album and enjoyed it enough that you now want to see the band when they're coming into town. I don't think that many people will go and see a band and then afterwards uh, fall in love with them and start to... Yeah. And I mean, when a band comes through on on a tour, I don't think you hear too much about that in the media. Like, not mm-hmm. enough to really like capture capture your attention. And yet, the the success of a tour relates to the success of an album. Right. So I don't know what the correlation. I, is I there. have to imagine if you have like a tour manager, who, if you're going to a city, you'd probably contact the local stations mm-hmm. and make sure the single's getting played. I, I imagine there are machines in work especially if you're on a major label that would right. contribute to you know a show leading to an album sale and right. vice versa but yeah if you if you're if you're just releasing it then you there's probably and it's obviously a different time 30 years ago like the music industry is so different today true, than it yeah. was in the 80s and late 70s that you know who knows what the what the standard procedure was for right. a touring artist but but uh let's take a listen I don't know. I'm tempted to play Running Up That Hill. That's the, obviously the big song. But uh, a lot of these songs are pretty good. Uh, wh- which one's your favorite? I was going to go with Running Up Running That, up that hill. hill. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take a listen.
Okay, tell me if I'm crazy, mm -hmm. but every time I listen to Kate Bush, her voice reminds me very strongly of Cyndi Lauper and Madonna. I can see that. If, I think if those two were more kind of prog rocky, mm -hmm. they would be Kate Bush. There's there's qualities I think that they share, right? I think especially Cyndi Lauper, like uh, like the time after time. Yes, that it sounds their vocal delivery is similar in that. Yeah. But also I think Kate Bush has a like a range that is uh, not maybe if Cyndi and Madonna have that, they don't use it because they're more interested in a pop song, right? Right, right, right. So I think the experimentation shows that full range that Kate Bush has. Yeah. I think. Okay. But I, I agree they have a similar I couldn't quite get over cadence. that when I was listening to this <laughs> album. Like, this is such a... I mean, we were talking about Whitney Houston as mm -hmm. kind of taking over pop music in 1985 and just redefining what yeah. a pop female vocal was prior to Whitney Houston. It's Cyndi Lauper and Madonna. Like, mm -hmm. those are the two kind of dominant voices and Kate Bush sort of falls into that category in a way. And then post-1985, and maybe that's the reason why 1985 is such a lost year because it's the break year yeah. between here's what pop music was and after 1985, it's something else. Yeah, Whitney Houston has a lot to do with that, but Kate Bush kind of falls into that earlier range for mm -hmm. me. I Maybe I'm the only one. Well, and I wonder too if it is um, part of, you know, by the by the mid to late 80s that's when the style has really set in right of what 80s music could, mm -hmm. can be and i think maybe that's why this takes off more in the u.s at this point too because it is more experimental so people could be, are yeah. finally searching for that like that counterpoint to the 80s uh excess and stuff so that's when they discover something like this right i think it's something weird that uh you might pick up on if you're like oh i want the opposite of a pop song right yeah you might go yeah. to kate bush and the whole second side of this, uh, which is dubbed the ninth wave, uh, is like a whole suite of songs that kind of run together and that are very mm. nautically themed and uh, is, are much more experimental than even the first half. The first half kind of has the big singles, on it, right. running up that hill, uh, big sky. They're, they're all the more catchier songs. Right. Which, I mean, already, like you can see the experimentation even in those, because I mean, we've got oh, cloud yeah. busting at the end of the, mm -hmm. at the end of the, the first side which is such a real specific reference to was it Wilhelm Reich is that the is that the name of the guy who invented the cloud buster yeah uh yeah that's a I think so such a weird guy mm -hmm. um but yeah let's make a song out of that it's yeah. great yeah. she was she was always very literary and very mm -hmm. theatrical uh I mean even her that one tour she did there was multiple costume changes and dancers and stuff like that she was she was a dancer as much like as a singer yeah exactly just <laughs> but uh her first that first album the kick inside was like had multiple tributes to her dance instructor and stuff like that like and all of her videos have like interpretive dances and stuff this She's, album has a random quote from tennyson on the back that sounds right. Wave after wave, each mightier than the last, till last the ninth one, gathering half the deep, and full of voices slowly rose and plunged, roaring, and all the wave was in a flame. Hounds yeah. of love. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like I mean, even that first, her first big single, Wuthering Heights from 78. Mm -hmm. It's literary, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's interesting to see, you know, the different directions that different pop artists will take, right? I mean, this is, I think the, thing i love the most uh, really about any music is finding somebody doing something that nobody else is doing 
Yeah. And I think Kate Bush is a pretty singular artist in the type of music she makes. Moving on. That's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the final album we've got for this week, uh, this is from September 30th, uh, 1985, Tom Waits' Rain Dogs. Tom Waits is such an interesting artist. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got that really distinctive voice, and he could, and he sometimes, in fact, often does, like, use that voice as a means to recording some real dark and depressing songs. But Tom Waits throughout his entire career is just having so much damn fun Mm -hmm. that... And and you can't you can't do pop when you're Tom Waits. You can't just do a straightforward. You can't be Huey Lewis when you're Tom Waits. No, definitely not. You can't just do a straightforward pop rock song. So if you're gonna have fun with a voice like that, mm-hmm. uh, you've got to turn it into this twisted off key carnival. Yeah. And that's exactly what he does. Mm-hmm. And in this particular album, because this is an album about New York City, right? Yeah. Which is. Uh, such a perfect time in the mid 80s for someone like Tom Waits because New York is just at the absolute bottom of Mm -hmm. its history like crime is through the roof there's Bernie Getz had just happened like we're at that that level of where New York City was as a community and Tom Waits comes along and says I want to do an album in tribute of New York City and it's this like dark and twisted carnival mm-hmm. and it's great yeah the the very first track that i like the first time i'm listening to this you know i had a, a cursory knowledge of tom Waits. i knew a little bit about him but hearing um hearing the the first song on here i, I was like first of all what do i get myself into <laughs> this is out of control <laughs> and then uh and tom that is not the preferred nomenclature asian american please Yes, but uh, then uh, I uh, the whole second time around it finally clicked. Like this, really, it is like a. It's about the dark alleyways and the mm-hmm. dingy clubs and the the grime and the of the city. And yeah, it's and really he doesn't shy away from it, but no. he loves it so damn much. Yeah, yeah. It's funny too because like I always kind of maybe as a, maybe because of this, just knowing about it, I guess I always associated him with New York. Uh-huh. But this is his, this he just moved to New York before this. So, I mean, he was a California-based artist the entire time before yeah. this. And the first, uh, my real first experience with him was probably um, uh, one from the heart, the Coppola movie that he did the music for. And so that was kind of my starting point. And it's funny because that turns out to kind of be a turning point for him as well, because he does that score. He's you know he's been kind of a blues, jazz, experimental artist before that. Uh, after doing that score, and he meets uh, his now wife uh, Kathleen Brennan, and becomes kind of, they become kind of partners in their music as well, and that's when he starts shifting to a more experimental mm. sound uh, that starts with uh, Swordfish Trombones, the album before this, and then goes into this one as well. And he can he assembles uh, like what he calls the junkyard orchestra, where it's just like found objects becoming percussion instruments and yep. stuff like that. Uh, I want to play. The second song, Clap Hands, which is the one, as soon as that second time listening to it, hearing the song, it was already like I could feel what he was going for yeah. immediately. So let's take a listen.
Your first experience with Tom Waits was his early stuff. My first experience with Tom Waits was he had uh, done the the songs for a, a musical version of the classic story Wojtek, hmm. which is a German story, I think, about a guy, like the sad sack guy who is poor and he's trying to make ends meet by like selling his body for medical research. Meanwhile, his wife is cheating on him (laughs) without his knowledge and he finally gets wind of it and then goes on this insane murderous rampage until he dies. That's the story. (laughs) And some group decided to turn this into a musical and ask Tom Waits to do the songs for uh-huh. it. And it's exactly like, it's this, right. it's rain dogs with the calliope and the, the off key carnival and the weird percussion and everything that we just heard in clap hands. And we went to see this musical oh, wow. in, uh, in Brooklyn when I was in grad school and Oh God, it was so terrible. <laughs> it was so bad bad like it was just depressing oh. and just relentlessly dour and uh-huh. dark and just everything stereotypically german about this but i still have the album oh. the soundtrack from it because uh or the cast album or whatever mm-hmm. which tom waits did he recorded all of the songs from this album so it's a tom waits album that's just Voidsec the music uh-huh. uh, and it's great like there's right. so much great stuff on it because the songs are just gleeful mm-hmm. in a way that the, the 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 overall play is not and rain dogs is just like that like you can imagine all of these songs as being the cast album to this super dark dour sad depressing yeah. musical uh with these fun calliope songs mm-hmm. just interspersed throughout there's a very theatrical feel to his music as well mm-hmm. uh, you know like we talked about with kate bush i mean but in a different direction almost i mean this is uh he was, and he was inspired too by like a lot of old, com, you know, composers right. and uh, things like that, like Kurt uh, Vile, Kurt Vile and, yep. and Bertolt Brecht and yep. stuff like that. I mean, so he took he crafted songs with characters like for even before being drafted into plays and stuff like that. I mean, yeah. these were this is such an animated album, like even without having a visual a visual accompaniment. Yeah. So this is the one, and we were talking about Tears for Fears earlier as being mm. the best album of the week. This is the other one, yeah. I think. It's it's one of those two, and it's real hard to compare. Mm-hmm. Very uh, hard. Tom Waits <laughs> yeah. versus Tears for Fears. There's no point of comparison yeah. where 
they're trying to do the same thing and one of them is better than the other mm -hmm. i don't like them both i know it's it's almost unbelievable that they came out the same year yeah like that, that's what's fun about this episode is seeing not just genre, but like in one year, right. these five albums came out. Well, it's because 1985 is such a void that you can just drop anything into that damn, <laughs> yeah. damn time. Uh -huh. I think the other, th I mean, Tom Waits really just, he has such a command over the rhythm and the melody and all these songs that it like almost, it's almost hidden the first time around. I mean, cause you're, you just hear that. Louis Armstrong gargling thumbtacks yes. that, that, yeah. he, that he sings in that you don't always notice the things until mm -hmm. you're like, okay, I understand what I'm going to hear, but let me, now I can look for other things within the song. Well, that voice allows him to just immediately get a sense of irony. Like if mm -hmm. he's singing with that voice, but you can tell that he's having fun doing it, like already there's something disconnecting. Mm -hmm. Because right, someone who someone who sings with that voice has gone through some shit, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know what shit he's gone through. Maybe it was just like bad orthodontics or something. But something <laughs> has has led to this voice that he's gonna be that he's gonna be bringing with him into this music. And if he's still having such a good time mm -hmm. with off key, like out of tune calliope music, yeah. then yeah, I'm I'm on board. There's not like. I, I don't smoke cigarettes mm -hmm. and there's nothing really much that makes me want to, but something about hearing this like puts me in a, just a smoke filled club that I'm like, right. I, all of a sudden, like, I feel like I need to take a drag of something at yeah. least. Although at the same time, there is no better anti-smoking advertisement <laughs> not, than yeah. listening to Tom Waits things like although, this could happen yeah. to you. Although he did continue his career, like until really like still like he's still going oh so, yeah i mean, no, he's great nothing stopping it might sound yeah. like that but he's gonna sound like it for 50 more years yeah i don't know yeah this could happen to you might not be the best answer <laughs> if you smoke you too could yeah. be a celebrated mm -hmm. recording artist with a cult following and dozens of albums to your name yeah. and everyone loves you well, it's like when don't smoke kids when lou reed died like just a few years ago mm -hmm. And thinking like, well, kids, if you do a lot of heroin, you might live to the long, happy life of <laughs> 70 or whatever that he lived to and have a prosperous career. Yeah. And die happy in your sleep. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go uh, find some illicit substances and uh, <laughs> think up uh, what the next season might be, because this is the final episode uh, of season one of uh, Andy Hears the 80s. So we heard a lot throughout these uh weeks uh what were what were some of your favorites Aaron? oh god uh okay so tom waits and tears for fears here the cure from uh from previous weeks mm -hmm. uh dead kennedy's yeah. is the one that stands out for me like there are a lot of albums that i that i or a lot of artists that i listened to that i had heard before or mm -hmm. heard of before or was familiar with and that there were some that i didn't know anything at all about uh, and some of them really stood out. And the Dead Kennedys is the one for me as far as like hardcore punk goes. They, I love that album. Yeah, I want to keep going really back great. to it. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's been really fun taking a look at all the different types of music that have come out. And some of the ones, you know, like I thought would uh, not get, like not grab me did, like Janet Jackson. Uh, and, uh, but then some of the ones I expected grabbed me even more. Like, I mean, like I said, I ended up buying about seven or eight rem records after yeah. this and and uh on top of the ones that you already owned from before well, i just right? had murmur yeah. before oh really yeah oh, so okay. i ended up i got a uh a best of that had you know a career spanning yes. one and then picked up like i said almost all the irs records okay. and uh like automatic for the people and uh monster i got as well yeah but all of which you know i just went to the 
UCD store and bought them for like three to five bucks each. Yeah, it's great. great. Right? Uh, no royalties at all. <laughs> well, they're they're retired. They're fine. <laughs> they made at this enough. point, you can't be too upset yeah. about Michael Stipe not yeah, exactly. getting royalties. A couple like, of them doing bought okay. Yeah. Yeah. I bought the uh, the best of that was new. Yeah, and actually, um, Automatic and Reckoning, I bought like uh, you know twentieth anniversary or whatever editions of that came with uh, some live albums that are pretty cool. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the uh, I still really love that. Um, the Curtis Blow record. It's still so fun. Yeah. The, it sounds like a party as soon as you put it on. Yeah. That and, uh, I mean... I actually have more of an appreciation just for Thriller now from listening. Yeah. From actually sitting down and listening to mm-hmm. the album and trying to actually listen to the songs for the first time. Like some of those songs, Thriller in particular, like the title track, I yeah. never really sat down and heard that song. And I, And part of it is the fact that the video in spite of the fact that it's 30 minutes long you never actually get the full song in mm-hmm. the video so the video just dominates the right. song in a way that it shouldn't but the song is great and i mm-hmm. never really appreciated that until this until that episode yeah it's true uh, and uh purple rain as well purple rain uh, yeah that, that, that too. still uh, purple rain is the one i keep coming back to is an album that should not work but does mm-hmm. like prince does such weird things in that album that in the hands of anyone else would just be not only a failure, but like the sort of album that you would talk about in the same way people talk about like the room as a movie, like, man, that was just bad all the way Mm -hmm. through, but it's Prince. So he does it and it works. And I don't understand it, but it's true. Yeah. Prince too is so prolific. Like there's even if you just isolated the 80s, there's easily enough for uh, another couple episodes yeah. if I was going to go that way. Do you have a favorite album that we've done? Of the whole thing? Of the whole thing, oh, yeah. Geez. It's tough, right? I know. Yeah. I want to say, I, I could probably do, let's see. It's tough because there's a bunch of different mm-hmm. possible criteria that you could use. Like, what is the best like pound for pound album what has the best songs on it mm-hmm. what's kind of the most coherent all the way through yeah like thriller for instance i think there are four songs on that album that if you just take those four out those four are just like the best things that mm-hmm. got produced in the entire decade but the entire rest of the album as far as i'm concerned is crap so right. like how does that compare to disintegration by the cure where nothing reaches the level of a thriller or a billy jean but every song is great Mm -hmm. yeah it's tough i I think i could maybe put together like a top five Mm -hmm. off i would say in no particular order i would probably put i put murmur in there Uh i'd put uh songs from the big chair i would put uh let it be the replacements I'd probably put uh, Paid in Full, Eric B. and Rakim. Yeah. And let's see. Maybe uh, Talking Heads. Talking Heads. Okay. Uh, If I'm picking a rap album, probably NWA before Mm. Eric B. and Rakim. Um, That's true. I also just excluded like all the seven I had from the beginning, which. Yeah, right. I mean. I still love those, but it's, now it's hard to put those up against these. Right, I've had right, them right. for ten years before uh, this. Yeah, so maybe maybe NWA, uh, Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA, mm. which was 
the first album that I was aware of as a child like that came out when i was four Mm -hmm. my parents bought it and i listened to it all the time i loved that album i still do um the cure disintegration possibly the dead kennedys i as big of an rem fan as i am i wouldn't say murmur just because i'm much more of a fan of the 90s stuff Mm -hmm. like automatic for the people and i listen to murmur and i see where they're going and i'm just aware of the fact that they're not there yet Uh So Murmur's not on my list, but it's 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 up there a ways. It's not in my top five. I don't know who else. I have to go through the whole series again and try to identify. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and uh, of REM, I think uh, Murmur and Automatic are definitely two of my favorites. And then also, um, what's the uh, the one with... Uh, Green? No, it's got Bill Berry's face on the cover, and it's orange on the bottom. Oh, uh, Life Search Pageant. Oh, okay. That one, that one, that Murmur and Automatic are my top okay. three from the you know seven or eight that I bought. I'm such a plebe. I just keep going back to Automatic. I mean, it's great start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm one of those people. It's like, oh, I love REM. What's your favorite song? Well, it's the top two singles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, the only, uh, you know, I got that best of, the um i still go to like uh losing my religion right it's still such a classic i can't stop yeah night swimming off of automatic is the the best one and strange currencies which i think is is that on monster Um, i think that's on monster yeah yeah those are the two if i want to be a cool Uh rem fan and someone says what are your what are your favorite rem songs like well those two because they're not they're not the singles you know they're not the big hits and one that we haven't mentioned yet, Echo mm-hmm. and the Bunnymen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of... It'd be funny to make like a top 10 songs and a top 10 albums. Because yes. there yeah, would yeah, be yeah. definitely... Yeah, like, I mean, Killing Moon, Fast Car. Right. There's so many like varied songs from different albums that I think yep. stand up against anything else. from. And I think you might have just named the top two right there. <laughs> like, be. I think if I go back... Uh, I, 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 and I am going to go back now and listen to all of the albums again because what I want to do now is because I am I am a completist but I'm also uh, I'm also a, a pitcher I'm the opposite of a hoarder I want to get rid of things uh-huh. so uh, I've got all of these CDs now I want to get rid of them but what I want to do is I want to go back and listen to them all pull the songs that I like make like mm-hmm. a, a two disc compilation uh, so I'm going to end up with a top 25. It's just a question of what's on it. But those two, Killing Moon and, and Fast Car, for sure, yeah. uh, are going to be on it. And what's the uh, Radio Free Europe? Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as Murmur goes, I'm not a huge, huge fan of the album. That song, Radio Free Europe, is one of my favorite REM songs, yeah. period. I like uh, I like talking talk about the passion, I think, yeah. the best on that one. And then, but I, I mean... Like I obviously love that whole album. I right. think Pilgrimage is when I go back to Shaking Through. There, there's, I don't skip any of the songs yeah. I'm listening to. And going back and listening to it again, I know I'm going to pick up on things that I didn't mm-hmm. get the first time. Because part of this is we're listening to the album for the first time and we're right. researching these bands for the first time. So some of the stuff that we're saying now, if I listen to the album five more times and then go back and listen to what I said here, I'm like, <laughs> oh no, that's yeah. completely wrong. What the hell are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Eric B. and Rockham is great. Yeah. But, Why did you make so much fun of Sonic Youth? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Never, yeah, season two, never straying from that opinion. It's going to be, uh, we're going to start off strong. We're going to go Sonic Youth's entire discography, well, start to finish. It's 
going to be great. I'm just going to bring an air horn. <laughs> <laughs> or a buzzer. Yeah. Like, there we go. Sonic Youth is great. <clears throat> I still would probably put uh, Daydream Nation in my top 10 if I was going to go. I know go. you would. I'm going to go back and listen to that album again because I'm, I'm missing something, right? <laughs> I've got to be. Yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because, you know, we talked about... Uh, We've, a few times we've talked about how much I listen to the guitars in a song, and I think uh-huh. that's a guitar record through and through, and right. in the opposite way that a hair metal record. Yeah, record, yeah, yeah. Where they're just these discordant tunings, and they're uh, they're just a wall of guitar sounds. Just they're trying to do something new. We just, yeah. I mean, we talked about it with Kate Bush this week, and I literally just got done reading a book about modernism. Peter Gay wrote this book about uh, about just like the history of modernism mm-hmm. uh, that got published a few years ago, but I just finally came upon it and read it, and. The whole history of modernism is the idea of, uh, of Ezra Pound said, make it new, right? Like, whatever you do, do something that's never been done before or mm-hmm. do it in a new way or do it in a way that makes people, like, to, that just explodes what people think they know or what people think they believe mm-hmm. uh, about something. And that's the difference between hair metal and Sonic Youth. Like, I'm not a fan of Sonic Youth, but they're trying to do something new. Mm-hmm. And hair metal is just doing the old stuff more. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And Kate Bush is the same way this week. Like, mm-hmm. she's trying to do something new. Tom Waits is trying to do something new. I don't think Whitney Houston was trying to do something no. new. She just succeeded. Yeah. yeah. She just did something better than anybody yes. else. Yeah. yeah. And, like, changed the game. Maybe it was only, like, it's going down this road, and she she bumped pop music, like, three degrees, mm-hmm. so now it's going down this slightly different road. But she did that. Yeah. Uh, so I think she counts. Mm-hmm. I think so. But well, Sonic Youth more than Whitney Houston. Also. Yeah, certainly did something different more yeah. than she did. Yeah. But so that's it. We've yeah. heard all the music from 1985, certainly. But now we've heard, jeez, uh, throughout the whole thing, we heard alternative, we heard hip hop, we heard new wave. new wave, punk rock, post punk, post punk. It was a whole X. month. That was basically just we listened to the Clash and now we want to do our stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's uh that book, the um Michael Ezrad's Our Bank of Your Life. That was yeah. three episodes worth of bands in there that yeah. are all independent artists. Oh, we do have to mention the clash though, as far as yes. like great great albums from the eighties, because you can't not mm-hmm. I mean, how influential were they? Oh yeah. They're they were like one like you said, they were one of the starting points for half a dozen bands that we yeah. listen to here. And the uh the uh, release date for London Calling in the U.S. was technically 1980, even though I, it was in the U.K. in 79, so I put it in 79. But mm. technically, you could call it one of the best albums of the 80s. What was the What was the Clash album that we did? Uh, Combat Rock. Combat Rock. All mm-hmm. I could think of was Casbah Rock. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> that's almost right. That's almost right, yeah. <laughs> Combat Rock, yeah. thank you. Well, that's thank, up there as well. Definitely, as it's up album. there, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for going along on this journey Absolutely. with me, Aaron. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think we heard a lot of great stuff and had a great time listening to it. Yeah. So hopefully, everyone listening did as well. And maybe we'll see you for season two. We'll when find we out. Hear more of the 80s. More of the 80s. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. Thanks for listening all season to Andy Here's the 80s. Aaron and I really did have a great time listening to these albums and talking about them. And I hope everyone out there listening enjoyed the show took a long time to get the series together, but I'm hopeful that at some point we can reconvene for another season. I know there's plenty of great 80s music out there that I have yet to hear. If you have any suggestions for me, send me an email at andyhearsthe80s at gmail.com. 
That's A-D spelled out, E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter, at Andy Hears It. Also, if you enjoyed the show, leave a rating and review on whatever podcast provider you use. If there's an app or service that doesn't have the show yet, let me know and I'll make sure it shows up there. Thanks again for listening. Stay tuned.